Welcome to another episode of IBSC Exploring Boys Education, a regular podcast in which we engage with the ideas that are shaping the landscape of boys education. I'm Bruce Collins, IBSC Director of Member Engagement, and it's a real privilege to be your host. We are introducing a new format in this episode as we grapple with an important topic for boys schools. This episode will be the first of a two-part series in which we explore reaching, teaching and succeeding with boys of colour. Before we get into today's topic, however, I'd like to just take a moment to encourage you in this difficult time when schools around the world are facing upheaval and disruption because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We at IBSC marvel at the work you all continue to do for your boys as you navigate a new way of being. Remember that we are here to support you, your school, and your work with boys. In November 2019, St. Albans School in Washington, D.C., in collaboration with Gilman School and Baltimore Collegiate, hosted the first of what we hope will become regular events on the IBSC conference calendar. The Reaching, Teaching and Succeeding with Boys of Color conference opened the door to much challenge and debate for the delegates assembled there. These meaningful conversations have spilled over and sparked dialogue in many corners of the coalition. As a result, this two-part podcast is one more way of engaging other people in this conversation. We'll hear more about the conference itself from Sherry Rusher, Dean of Students at St. Albans School, in part two. Part one focuses on the conversations I was privileged to have with Jack Pennell, Dr. Joseph Nelson and Dr. Randall Kennedy and will create a foundation for boys' schools with regards to reaching, teaching, and succeeding with boys of color. In part two, which will release soon, we speak to teachers and school leaders in New Zealand, the United States, South Africa, and other parts of the world about their work with boys on the margins. In engaging in this conversation, I am reminded of what Bell Hooks says in Teaching to Transgress. The classroom remains the most radical space of possibility in the academy. Education was about the practice of freedom. As a classroom community, our capacity to generate excitement is deeply affected by our interest in one another, in hearing one another's voices, in recognizing one another's presence. My teachers made sure they knew us, they knew our parents, our economic status, where we worshiped, what our homes were like, and how we were treated in the family. It is clear to me that we cannot ignore this work and that it is imperative for us to engage in these important conversations. We start by connecting with Randall Kennedy, who is the Michael R. Klein Professor at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. Kennedy writes for a wide range of scholarly and general interest publications and is a multi-book published author. At the start of our conversation, I asked him to share about his interest in the topic of reaching, teaching and succeeding with boys of color. Well, I, I should say that much of what I think about this has to do with not so much with my professional experience. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, professor at a law school, so the students with whom I interact are considerably older than the students with whom uh, colleagues in secondary schools interact. And I, and I often say that uh, colleagues in secondary schools uh, have a, a much more difficult job because I'm t I teach you know, young adults and I don't have to interact with their parents. Whereas if you're a secondary school, you're, t you're, t you're teaching uh, teenagers and you're, you, you, you are interacting with their parents. And that's, that's a much more difficult undertaking. So much of my thinking about this, really, I, I, I tap into uh, my own personal history. Um, the most important school that I attended was my secondary school, St. Albans School for Boys in Washington, D.C., I was one of few black students uh, at St. Albans. Um, it was very important to me. I have kept in touch with 
my teachers and with St. Albans as an institution and have you know, ma maintain an interest in uh, the uh, the education of, of, of boys and the education of uh, boys of color in particular at, you know, private uh, elite schools, but it, it's, it's not part of my, you know, day-to-day -day teaching. Like I said, I, I stayed in touch with, have stayed in touch with my, my former teachers. I was on the board at St. Albans for uh, a number of years, and, you know, I'm in with, with colleagues, with with friends who've sent you know their kids to schools. I have two boys. I have three children, a girl and, and two boys. Two of my boys went to a uh, independent all boys Catholic school in uh, Needham, Massachusetts. It's a wonderful school, uh, Saint Sebastian School. So you know, as a parent uh, as well, I, I, I guess I, I you know I'm, I've been very interested uh, in in this subject. I asked Randall to give his views on the importance of this work in schools. It's important that we're having these conversations because we still confront real problems of, 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 of all sorts. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is that it's, it's still the case that in, in many private schools, the, rate, the number of uh, boys of color t tends to be small. And uh, sometimes, you know, sometimes vanishingly small, and that, you know, that raises that raises issues, that raises problems. The you talked of history. I mean, the the, the fact of the matter is, the the history of uh, boys of color at uh, elite secondary schools, it's 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 not a long history, and um, in certain ways. You know the, the 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 kids at these schools, the boys at these schools, in certain ways are still in the we're still in the pioneering stages in in, in many respects. It's not like we have a long, 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 deeply developed history. We're we're still experimenting. We're still trying to find our way, and the only way in which we can accomplish that is through discussion, through experiment, through uh, debate. Um, to try to figure out methods and best methods. Next, Randall reflected on the challenges that boys of color face in their pursuit of education. There are many. I mean, one. Let's suppose, and here again, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling on my own. Uh, I'm, I'm going autobiographical here. So you, you're. You grow up in a in a in a neighborhood, and I grew up in a in a predominantly black but thoroughly you know work, working class, um, settled, you know, good neighborhood. But I was to go to St. Albans. I I went across the city. I left my neighborhood. I left the kids with whom I had uh, grown up. With whom I'd grown, you know, I, I I was was going someplace else, and so I'm leaving. I'm leaving what's familiar to me. I'm going to new surroundings, and for a youngster, that's you know, that's that that's a, that can be a real big deal. Um, there were feelings of so I'm you know I'm you know my my friends in my neighborhood say to me, well you know Randy, why are you leaving? Why are you leaving us? Are you abandoning us? Are you ashamed of us? Are you know? Are you what? Are you too good for us? I mean, those are you know, those are the sort of questions that um, that I got, and that I know for certain that uh, other uh, you know boys of color get. And then when they go to okay, so that's what they get. That's what they get in their own neighborhood. And there's a certain amount of alienation that sometimes arises, and um, and that can be that can be tough on a youngster. And then okay, so then they they go to the new place, and in the new place they are talking with youngsters who, you know, have been social. Sometimes they've been socialized quite differently. 
And they, you know, sometimes they like, you know, very different music. Their aesthetic sensibilities are different. They, uh, maybe they haven't been around uh, boys of color uh, before. And, you know, they might ask questions which, you know, they could be perfectly innocent questions, but maybe they come off, you know, sort of awkwardly. And so th these are some of the, the, the issues that come up. You, you go to a different school. You're a boy of color. You go to a different school. There are not many uh, other, uh, you know, boys of color in your, in your class. You feel like you're sticking out. Um, and then, of course, with any youngster, I don't care who the youngster is, if you're growing up, you're going to class, you're trying your best, you're in a competitive environment, things come up. There are misunderstandings, there are, uh, you know, mistakes made, and under the best of circumstances. Now, you know, a mistake is made, or somebody says something. Well, is this just the sort of thing that, you know, happens? You know, everybody makes mistakes, everybody says something that comes out the wrong way some of the time? Or is this something that is aimed at me and you know that that raises a lot of anxiety you know was it was this was this was this teacher dismissive with me because i'm black or was this teacher dismissive because the teacher is excessively dismissive uh if this teacher gave me a bad mark or, by the way, if this teacher gave me an extremely good mark, well, is that a uh, is that just the teacher's um, you know impression of my effort and my achievement, or do we have you know is there some sort of bias one way or the other you know playing into this? Well, I mean, these are questions that are difficult for adults, for goodness sakes, much less people who were 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. In considering reaching, teaching, and succeeding with boys of color, I asked Randall to reflect on the pitfalls of which schools need to be aware when approaching this work. A colleague of mine often used to say that we don't know what we don't know. Randall gives us some insights into where some schools might be getting it wrong. One thing is, you know, I am really happy to see schools, you know, in my country, in the United States, and obviously, you know, around the world, are very concerned about this, are thinking about it, are putting resources into it. That's really good. I'm glad about that. At the same time, you know, when we try to, uh, virtues can be vices. And one thing that I am a little, I'm, I'm concerned about is uh, I, I see sometimes that my perception is that sometimes out of the laudable effort to be welcoming and to be supportive and to be helpful, my perception is that sometimes institutions are going overboard and are actually um, being counterproductive in their efforts to, you know, actually be helpful. So, I mean, here's the thing, and, and, and again, you know, people are going to debate this and talk, you know, there people, there's going to be debate about this and different people are going to see things differently. But, you know, you're asking me my view, so I want to share with you my view. Um, in the United States, both in um, uh, elite uh, private secondary schools and uh, in colleges, so there's, there's the following sort of debate that goes on. Well, you know, how, how should we bring in kids who are, you know, maybe from families that have not, 
you know, don't have, you know, have not gone to private institutions before. Maybe that, you know, maybe the parents, you know, the parents were an alumni of these schools, for instance. You know, maybe it may very well be, you know, these are the, the first kids that have gone to schools like this in the history of this family. So how do we, how do we, how do we deal with such students? Do we just say, okay, you're in, and by the way, here's, you know, and, and, you know, and you've got scholarship money, and, you know, class starts on Monday at 8 o'clock? I mean, you know, do, do we, is it that? Or do we do more? Do we, for instance, have, um, uh, have special programs where maybe we bring those kids in one or two or three or four weeks early for purposes of preparation? for purposes of, you know, supplementation to, you know, to sort of, you know, maybe try to, you know, get them up to speed. It seems to me um, that's a complicated issue. And I think that people need to be really very, uh, need to, need to be thinking hard about it. I don't, I don't, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it's a good idea. On the other hand, in these discussions, I think that people, ought to be asking not, you know, should, should not take for granted that it is a good idea. So for instance, I've seen settings, um, I'll go back to my college. I went to Princeton University. When I left St. Albans, I went to Princeton. When I was a freshman at Princeton, most minority students went to a, it was either a week or might have even been two weeks of some, it was a, it was a, it was a program that began before the school year began. And clearly the purpose of Princeton University was to help out, you know, uh, minority students from various places. And I, you know, the best of intentions. Now, interestingly enough, I was not, I was not asked to to be part of it. I, 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 yeah, I just, I just showed up, you know, Monday morning with, you know, the great mass of students. I, I was not asked to be part of the program. Looking back, I'm going to tell you, I'm happy that I wasn't part of the program. I think that the program, again, well-intentioned, but it had some, I think, rather negative, um, uh, side effects. So for instance, I mean, one side effect was you had, you, you created a community of people. You know, you had, you know, young people, they're going to be part of a class. You created a subset of people who hung out together, got to know one another. They were all racial minority people. So you created a sub, you know, a subset before the class got there. Now, you know, you create a subset, well, okay, fine, but that subset, of course, is going to remain a subset. And I think that, um, you know, there were certain ideas that sort of were let loose in those, that week or two weeks, however long it was, a certain sort of what I think sociologists now refer to sometimes as, you know, an oppositional culture. There was a certain sort of skepticism toward the sort of the broader community. There was a certain sort of cliquishness that had been, that had been inculcated. So, you know, I, I think these are things that people ought to think about. If I'm going to a school, you know, if I'm going to go, I'm, I'm a black kid, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I come from a predominantly black neighborhood, let's say, and I'm going to a elite school. Well, when I show up, you know, well, you know, do I, how, how differently do, do I want the people to treat me? Do I want to just be, you know, a regular, hey, I'm a student just like every other student here. And I want to rise or fall or, you know, distinguish myself like everybody else. Um, maybe I don't want to be uh, treated all that much differently. Maybe I don't want to be, have been put in a club that, you know, marks me in some sort of way. So, I mean, I think that these are all questions that, um, 
you know, we need to really think about and think about hard and be willing to maybe experiment and, you know, look at in different ways. I think sometimes that in, in my experience, various ideas sort of get to be the fashionable ideas, the in ideas, and people assume that, you know, those are the, the good ideas. Well, sometimes they're good ideas, but not necessarily so. Coming out of this part of the conversation, I asked Randall to suggest how boys' schools might work towards becoming more inclusive spaces. Point number one. I mean, I, I think there's certain just sort of fundamentals that go for students, and, and frankly, I don't care who the students are, where they come from, rich, poor, whatever. Uh, you have a selection process. You select people who you think are going to, you know, be able to make it and who are going to be able to make a contribution to your community and you think your, your community is going to be able to make a contribution to them. So uh, it seems to me that th that needs to be there front and center. Uh, you know, uh, you bring in people who you're very confident are going to be able to cut it. Um, after that, you have high expectations. And by the way, I don't think that there should be any sort of, um, there shouldn't be any subterfuge. There shouldn't be any sort of uh, pretense. Um, I think that you can contribute to this community of, uh, of, uh, uh, you know, of, of young scholars. Uh, that's why, you know, we've made this scarce opportunity available to you. We want to help you do that, just like we want to help every other of this community, every other person in this community blossom. We, you know, we want to help you blossom. We expect for you to blossom. We want, you know, I want to communicate from day one, high expectations. I think it's a real problem if you have a school in which year after year after year, there is a disproportion of racial minority kids in the last fourth of the class and very, very few, vanishingly few minority kids that are winning, you know, academic prizes and are at the top. I mean, you know, these, these, these students are not blind. These students are not, you know, they're, they're attentive. They, 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 they get it. They see what's, you know, they, they pick up on things. And I think that that is a, I, I, I get the sense sometimes that that's the way it is at uh, some of these schools. You know, the, the, you know, the athletes, some of the prize athletes, racial minority kids, um, nice kids, wonderful kids, but, you know, they're near the bottom of the class. Well, you know, if, if, if you go to school for four years and you get habituated to the minority kids being at the bottom of the class, that's not a good, uh, that's not a good lesson that, you know, a school wants to be imparting to anyone, to the, to the, by the way, to the white kids or the minority kids. My conversation with Professor Kennedy gives us a good foundation for the next conversation in which I was privileged enough to engage with Jack Pennell, who is the Executive Director of the Baltimore Collegiate School for Boys, and Dr. Joseph Nelson, Assistant Professor in the Department of Educational Studies at Swarthmore College, and affiliated faculty with the Black Studies Program and the Gender and Sexuality Studies Program. He is also a Senior Research Fellow with the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls' Lives at the University of Pennsylvania. As I started my conversation with Jack and Joseph, they helped contextualize the conversation for us. Jack's opening thoughts are insightful. I'm taking a deep breath. I hope Joseph's taking a deep breath. Um, I think uh, 
for reaching teaching and seeing with boys of color, it, we really have to go back into uh, an era where so many schools, at least in the U.S. context, were devoid of boys of color, and uh, and what life was like for one or two or three boys of color to be on a campus of um, of, of people who don't look like them. I was one of those boys in my early life, life, not at a boys' school, but I was one of the first black kids to desegregate public schools in Dayton, Ohio. And so I went to an all-white school as a sixth grade kid. And, uh, you know, I experienced a lot of things that a kid should not have to experience at that age. Now, that's in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, now we're 40 years away from that. And it's still on many, many campuses are a small minority of boys of color in a predominantly white um, campus, white setting. Uh, and so, and then and there are other schools that have done tremendous work in uh, diversifying their school population, school community uh, with students from all walks of life. And I believe that's been an amazing asset for those schools because the, the boys in that environment are experiencing the world as it is or as it should be. That means a diverse world. There are many cities around the world that are extremely diverse, New York City, London, uh, Sydney to some extent. And, um, and, and there are people working along side by side with each other. And I think that it's our moral responsibility as school leaders, as teachers in school environments to, to understand what it's like to reach, teach, and succeed with boys of color. And I too can speak from my own experience in high school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, being one of very few boys of color in a predominantly white, all boys, Catholic Jesuit high school. And seeing that experience as one that this particular learning environment needed to be especially attuned to because there were so few of us and our experiences were going to be very different from our peers. And what I experienced in that context was a lot centered around questions that I take up now as a university professor, researcher, scholar, around relationships with boys of color and how that becomes a critical window into seeing them as more than oftentimes the negative stereotypes associated with their race and gender that get used as a lens for teachers to view them as potentially problems or a disruption or boys to not let into particular kinds of learning environments. So I see relationships as a critical kind of medium through which teachers and other educators can reach and teach and succeed with boys of color in light of these lines of difference around race and class in particular that we're often navigating within these spaces. So those relationships allow us to see those, see young boys of color, black boys in particular, outside of these narratives that are often perpetuated about. I asked Joseph and Jack to comment on the pressure marginalized boys feel to assimilate into a dominant cultural expression in a school. I think that there needs to be explicit conversations with boys of color about the learning environments that they're entering that are predominantly white that they have particular histories that are tied to particularly local context. So speaking in the U.S., there's a, a, a strong history around race relations within the U.S. that oftentimes um, independent schools, the context where very few blacks attended. <laughs> so, and there are norms and expectations within those environments that often are aligned with white Eurocentric perspectives and histories that um, shape their learning experience. So I think it's important for boys of color to recognize that that's part of a context that they're entering that then allows them to um, see who they are as something that is a value or a contribution to this learning environment and not be seen or not see themselves um, as a burden or a deficit but in fact, something that can enhance and expand and enrich these communities in light of their own distinct racial and cultural background. Yeah, Bruce, I think uh, the choice of the word assimilation is interesting. It's 
is fraught with um, some worry for me uh, because uh, there might be an expectation by um, some institutions that why can't the boys of color be just like us? And, uh, and I think the, uh, the goal of education is to, the goal of education, particularly I think the goal as a leader of an all boys school is that I want boys to discover who they are uh, and to be comfortable in who they are. And uh, for a boy of color, and I also want to mention boys on the margin. There are boys who low-income households or who from indigenous cultures in other countries um, that we might not use the same language, but we're talking about that boy where he is seen as a minority on a school campus. Uh, that uh, that you know, you, when a boy walks through the doors of your schools around the world, a boy of color, he is probably shedding a part of himself to walk in that door every single day. And at, at, at 12 and 13 years old, you may not know what that means, but I can tell you, having lived it, that um, uh, it's a struggle. Um, one friend of mine who went to a private school says he was in Washington, D.C., and he lived in a, in a segregated part of the city, and he would take three buses to get to school, and he said he would spend his time dressing uh, on three buses to look right to walk into school, and then when he left the school, undressing so he could go back to his home community. Uh, and so that's a, that's a, there's a lot of weight there, right? that's put on that boy's lived experience every single day that has to do with maintaining who he is, staying connected to his family, honoring who, who he is, and also going into a school and figuring out how he's going to live and thrive and study in a school that can be remarkably different from his life at home. Yes, and it's a, a constant, regular navigation that boys of color or boys on the margin have to contend with that represents another layer of resilience that they need to exercise in order for them just to be a successful student that we that we oftentimes overlook or don't acknowledge or don't recognize and it's their adolescence, early adolescence, children even, that, that these expectations for them to think about what parts of themselves are they gonna de-emphasize or emphasize and still hold a positive sense of self throughout all of that and do well in physics. <laughs> you know, becomes all these factors that they have to contend with that I think we as educators and as um, folks who work in schools can think about how we can organize schools or structure schools in ways that mitigate um, the levels of resilience that often boys need to to exercise. So I suppose the question is this, is there a crisis in the education of black boys, marginalized boys and boys of color? Joseph and Jack weigh in on this question in turn. In popular discourse, in news and media and film, oftentimes how black boys or boys of color get framed are in fact in crisis. And what they're speaking to are often a set of negative social and academic outcomes. So outside of schools, seeing black males leading the country in rates of homicide, suicide, and incarceration. But then within the context of school, we see them overrepresented in suspension and expulsion rates, and then underrepresented in advanced placement and honors courses, and then more likely to be designated as, as students who have special needs, and then ultimately are more likely to drop out. So it's these both social and academic outcomes that make up this crisis, at least particularly within the US context, that is derived from a history of race relations in the US that perpetuate a set of stereotypes about black men being hyper-aggressive, anti-intellectual, hypersexual as the archetype of what it means to be a black man that then has roots to the history of slavery within the US. So from one generation to the next, we see a perpetuation of images that then contribute to how we organize schools and communities as places that um, are racially marginalizing and then also marginalized by gender that then contribute to the perpetuation of these outcomes. And, and situates them within the black boys and men themselves rather than the schools and neighborhoods and communities within which they navigate 
that are designed in ways that are responding to this negative image that only contributes to the continuation of these outcomes. Clearly, the intersection between gender and race is important to acknowledge in this conversation. Absolutely. That, you know, it's, it's a set of, of um, they call it a double threat <laughs> in ways that a, a confluence of both racial and gender stereotypes intersecting in a way that causes teachers and other educators to have a particular view of them. So what does it mean to be a man and a boy is intersecting with what it means to be black. <laughs> Jack Pennell continued by reflecting on his experience in this regard. I created a school for boys in an urban setting uh, that where the majority of the boys are uh, black. And um, uh, 98% of our boys are boys of color and they're African-American. Um, 60% come from uh, single parent households. Um, and 70% come from households uh, living in poverty. Um, I would say that our school is, uh, in many ways, and, and Joseph has been to visit it, is unapologetically black. And when I say that, that I think there's a notion of safety when our boys come into our space that they feel safe, they feel loved, and they feel understood. And we work very hard to not prepare them for a world that is all of one color, but we, we work hard to prepare them so they can compete and succeed in a world that's often hostile to them. We have a boy at an all-boys boarding school here in the U.S., and this boy experienced uh, a very racially charged incident uh, at his school with a roommate who um, called him out uh, by a, a derogatory word, a racially charged derogatory word. And, and the boy had to um, deal with it on his own. And he wrote to his mom, he said, I didn't tell you mom about it because I didn't want to lose my scholarship. Uh, and that gave me great pause. Like, this was bigger than him. This was an institutional problem. This was a problem involving another student who should have been severely punished or expelled from the school. But yet this 13-year-old boy is trying to navigate this on his own. Truth is, many schools, including schools in the IBSC network, are doing wonderful work to support boys of color and marginalized boys to succeed. The most important place that schools are doing there are making a, affirmative steps to recruit um, and support financially uh, boys of color to come into the doors. They're opening the doors, uh, creating access to a high quality education. That is the number one thing I see. Um, the second thing is many schools have created uh, positions for people dealing with diversity and inclusion. So there's a conversation afoot at most schools about diversity and inclusion. There's a, self, there's a period, of, I think, of self-introspection that say, what have we done wrong? What can we do better? I, I see an eagerness to change and to be self-reflective. So I think that's very good. And I think um, I'm seeing more um, graduates of these schools wanting to come back and make things better for them, for the present generation of boys at schools, than for their generation. Yes. And what I can speak to in that regard too, particularly within the IBSC network, is a doubling down on the importance of relationship building and relational teaching as a practice where teachers are being supported and coached around developing positive learning relationships with boys in schools. And then black boys or boys of color or marginalized boys in particular, that when there's, when learning is the goal and there's these lines of difference that we're navigating around race, gender, and class, and that are, are tied to being marginalized within particular um, local or global contexts, 
there needs to be an intentionality brought to those relationships that are rooted in a sense of curiosity, a sense of understanding a boy's perspective and experience that helps you understand their worldview better, that helps you better teach them in the context of your own school or classroom. And it's through those relationships that you learn that the boys that once you had these images of that are tied to these race and gender stereotypes becomes the furthest thing from, and in many ways so much more than the narratives that are perpetuated about them. And then that is what allows for a reimagining of boys of color, which I feel is fundamentally at the root of all of the issues and outcomes and crises rhetoric that we hear. It's a fostering of a reimagining of a boys of color and marginalized boys that then will allow teachers and educators to see their great potential and promise and then work to realize that in their lives. Joseph and Jack continue by highlighting the questions about which they believe educators of boys need to be thinking. I, I, I want them to be thinking about who they who their boys are and making a, a, a concerted, genuine effort to get to know them and always checking in with themselves about what efforts am I making to ask them about their experiences, really value their perspective, and then learn about their lives. That then I think is as maybe commonsensical as that may sound or appear. I think it's one thing that still gets in the way of educators being able to effectively teach boys of color. I, and Thank you, uh, Joseph. I think that that's pretty clear. What I see that I really want to be very precise is that I think staff from many schools are are not as diverse as they could be, uh, and and I and so therefore because they're not as diverse as they could be, then I think it's incumbent upon all all staff at a school to do exactly what Joseph mentioned: is to develop real, authentic learning relationships with 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 the um, with their boys of color and marginalized boys. And, and, and Joseph and I have come to opinion that, a shared opinion, that this can be taught. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, green, blue. Um, it, we can teach how to have um, develop positive learning relationships with boys of color. It, we're saying, I think we're saying, Joseph, maybe you disagree. We're saying that it looks different. Um, you, uh, you know, it looks different for boys of color and you shouldn't come to it with a lot of assumptions, but you should be willing to to have a growth mindset around understanding how you can be most effective with your students um, on a social, emotional and learning perspective. Yes. And I do agree that, you know, we, we've learned through asking teachers about their relationships with boys, as well as asking boys about their relationships with teachers what are gestures that they've known for teachers to extend that have been helpful in them building a positive relationship. And there are ones in light of kind of how boys of color have been marginalized within school contexts that are more beneficial than other or were found to be more salient than others. You know, so for example, establishing common ground, the task of a teacher exploring similarities that they have with the boys that they teach. And that simple gesture of acknowledging the same interest in sports or even the same interest in technology or same interest in a television show, it's just this simple gesture that allows the teacher to see themselves in the boy and then the boys also allow themselves to see themselves in their teachers. And so that is a, a you know one kind of relational gesture that teachers and boys talk about being extended in those relationships that then um, becomes especially salient for black boys or distinct to black boys and light again of these differences that they're, that, they're, that they're navigating. School policy and other structural concerns and ways of being in a school space impact the experience boys have in that space. In particular, this is true for marginalized boys and boys of color. When one considers things like teacher expectations, school discipline policies, and special educational referrals. Those I've come to recognize through the research literature 
as the policies or institutional practices within schools that are inflicting the most harm on boys of color or marginalized boys. So what are the ways in which we can adapt or modify these practices within schools to make them more equitable so that schools aren't operating in more disproportional ways around school discipline or teachers' expectations of boys being more um, um, skewed towards the negative end or even how we determine what actions or behaviors dictate a student indicating a special need. So all of those specific policies as examples of ones that are afflicting the most harm, we need to revisit, you know, and, and provide more support for teachers and administrators around how can we implement these practices in more equitable ways that then allow boys to be more of who they are and not become a place that continues to be another context in their life where they're being marginalized. So do you think, Joseph, we can give a very specific example uh, that will help our listeners to kind of, you know, what comes, what comes to my mind is uh, the clash between, on campuses between uh, free speech and hate speech. And if a student, a boy of color responds with violence toward, uh, you know, an epithet that's used against him, that boy is likely to uh, be expelled for being engaged in a fight, whereas the boy who used the word um, might receive a different kind of consequence. Uh, and and, and these are delicate matters. I mean, I, there are no easy solutions around it, but, um, you know, we teach our boys all day long use your mouth and your and your head rather than your hands and your arms and we spend years trying to um, to teach our boys that every matter doesn't have to be resolved through a physical altercation but there are times where it seems to me you push you, a boy gets pushed over the edge and that's what he knows to do is that fair joseph what do you think yeah absolutely and i, I think along with that another quick example is just a, a young boy of color expressing excitement around a novel lesson that's about to take place. So it could be in a middle school classroom, elementary school classroom, and they're about to do a volcano experiment. And the, the boy is being excited and demonstrating his excitement through bopping around in their chair. And that action being perceived by the teacher as a possible threat, he's gonna knock over the volcano, He's going to disrupt the activity in some way, and so we're going to have to derail it or discontinue it, but yet see that action, that behavior as a form of excitement that he or she could harness towards the implementation of this novel experiment that they're about to conduct. So it's just yet another example of, at least that example maybe falls into the teacher expectation category, that then if we can shift teachers' thinkings of the black boys or boys of color in their classrooms, we're more likely to see those actions as an, ex as an expression of excitement, intellectual curiosity, promise, potential, that then we can harness towards their learning and the learning of their, of their peers. In wrapping up, I asked Jack and Joseph to share an encouragement for educators of boys as they consider mindfully the task of reaching, teaching, and succeeding with boys of color. I think there's like two things that I think that schools should actively be thinking about. It's one is convening conversations often with the boys and the boys of color and their parents and just an open forum for where nothing's decided as much as the people are heard. I think when people feel heard, and I'm seeing this happening across schools across the world, um, a whole different kind of institutional posture can come about if we just listen very carefully to our families and, and not listen like, I'm gonna solve every problem you possibly have, as much as like, how do we solve this problem together? And so I think convening the boys, convening their parents and other stakeholders in ongoing conversations about life at your schools is uh, as a boy of color and a marginalized boy will go a long way in making real change. And I guess I would offer an extension of what Jack just shared for teachers and educators broadly within schools that 
boys are inclined to to be open to i guess being seen in the sense that let curiosity rather than fear be the starting point through which you support your boys that i think that is one thing i see is oftentimes just a, a paralysis of teachers that then are afraid in many ways to kind of reach out and extend that um that it's replacing that fear and that even that fear that is well-meaning and that they're, they're a genuine interest to support them well but with curiosity and seeing um the possibility and potential that they have and can bring to their their school communities so it's a it's a, a mode of courageous curiosity about the boys in their lives i'm sure you'd agree that there's so much food for thought in this episode i am challenged in particular by dr joseph nelson's encouragement for us to let curiosity rather than fear be the starting point for our support of boys of color and marginalized boys and that we would all develop a courageous curiosity about the boys in our lives. Join us soon on part two of this episode as we connect with educators from around the world who will share practical insights about how this work finds authentic expression in their contexts. Don't forget to send us your thoughts on a WhatsApp voice note. We'd love to feature as many voices as possible on this topic in part two. You can send these voice notes to plus two seven seven one eight nine one one eight nine eight. Until our next conversation very soon, especially in this challenging time, keep safe and well. <laughs>